Good morning. As I'm speaking, you can pray for me because I've had a cold this week, and so I don't want to be coughing and uh, don't want to cough on the communion stuff. So I have portable hand sanitizer, so I'll be spraying that before I touch the plates and pray over them. So just, you know, you can worship in comfort and uh, without fear. So, uh, man, I, I love a good story. And I love a good story where the characters are shown, uh, super spicy characters, really like vibrant colors. But in any good story, characters go through development and they become something that you didn't really know what was in them. And that's really actually the story of us. That's the story of the gospel is that the characters, man, were colorful. Uh, God is so colorful and beautiful and awesome that he redeems broken things. And this is just a beautiful story of redeeming broken stuff, broken relationships, broken situations, and that three very different and very unequal men are, because of the gospel, able to call each other brothers and able to call each other in a very awkward situation a treasure. And what we're going to see at this table is God takes very different people, very colorful Uh, types of sinners and loves them, forgives them, and then says, come, your brother Jesus invites you to come. He has spread this meal for you. And so this is a rich story. And to save my voice, I'm going to just pick up in verse 8 down to the end. And I'll refer to the other verses as we go through. This is God's word. This is the book of Philemon. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own free will. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord." So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So here's the scene. You you probably hear it. Paul, uh, the apostle who wrote a lot of the books in the New Testament, this is a letter that he's writing to a friend. This guy, the recipient, his name is Philemon. And he literally has a church in his house. So he's probably a rich man. He can have 20, 30, or 100 people and their kids and, and dogs and chickens running around uh, as they worship and they feast together. Um, 
his wife, Aphia, is mentioned in verse 2, as well as scholars think their son, Archippus, uh, who's called here a, a fellow soldier and the church in your house. So he, he's saying, hey, friends, hey, I'm in prison, I'm, I'm writing about you. And he's actually writing, as we see down in the letter, about a very sensitive, a very politically charged, and a very, just very hot-button topic. That really the topic of this letter <clears throat> is, yes, it's about love. It's, we're going to see it's about partnership. Um, it's about a few other things. But there's the elephant in the room is there's a guy named Onesimus. And Onesimus used to be the slave of Philemon, and he ran away. So one of the things I want us to look at is I want to look at these three men and this relationship and this awkwardness through the lens of this theme of useless. I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have ever been called useless? You can maybe remember the day. It's maybe marked you. It's maybe shaped you. And every day of your life is maybe proving uh, no, I'm not. I'm not useless. I'm going to be useful. I'm going to be something. And so living under that cloud. And so actually, if we look at each of these guys for a second, I want us to look at several ways in which they, either in our estimation or their own culture's estimation, were really useless, and about how that doesn't throw God off at all, and that God actually makes them very useful, not just as little cogs in the wheel of his kingdom, but very precious to him, and then God does a very special and very personal and very powerful thing in each of their lives. And even through their relationship is one of the instruments God uses to transform these three guys who couldn't have more uh, difference and really less in common. But that's the beauty of the gospel. Well, let's think about Paul for a second. How useless is Paul? Well, if you read the rest of the New Testament, he's very willing to tell you how useless he is. <clears throat> He's like, I used to be one of the worst kind of religious fanatics. I was a Pharisee, which if you read the stories of Jesus' interaction with his kind of church culture, Pharisees were his favorite kind of whipping boys because they loved to, as we saw in Sunday school this morning, they loved to point out the speck in other people's eyes, but they were oblivious to the sin in their own life, what Jesus calls the log in your own eye. These guys saw everybody else's sin never theirs. And guess what? That's what Paul was. And he says, I took that hardcore looking at people's sins to the ultimate degree as I actually turned people over to be killed because they belonged to Jesus, belonged to this new upstart rebel group called Christians. He's like, I love God so much, air quotes, that I killed people for it. I had people killed for it. And you're like, that's probably the ultimate devotion, but a wrong execution, right? Um, so Paul's useless because he's on the wrong side of the issues. He's a terrorist. He's just wrong in so many ways. He says, I was proud. I was boastful. He says, I was ignorant, but God showed me mercy. And so uh, God delivers uh, Paul's life verse to him when he is first uh, transformed and, and saved. And uh, basically is, Paul, I'm going to show you how much you sh will have to suffer for my name. Wonderful life verse. But that's Paul's life for suffering for Jesus. And so when Paul is writing this letter, he's literally suffering for Jesus in prison, as we see in verse uh, 9. I'm an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I'm a prisoner of Jesus. 
You could say, Jesus ruined my life. <clears throat> but except he's not bitter about it. So in one sense, and Paul struggles throughout his ministry. You see this in the book of 2 Corinthians. He says, you got, I'm in prison, but you got guys that call themselves super apostles, super awesome teachers. You know, they can fill a stadium. But you know what? They're not suffering in prison. So if you think it's kind of lame that I'm in prison, I'm putting my money where my mouth is. So in one sense, I'm useless. I can't plant churches anymore. I'm chained to this big Roman guard with, with armor. I'm kind of useless, but God's using me. So Paul, is he useless? Well, maybe, maybe not. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. Philemon. Okay, he's a slave owner. To a lot of us, we'd say, dude, totally useless. Like, we don't have those anymore. What's up with that? You're not supposed to own people. You're not supposed to enslave people. You're not supposed to treat people like capital or, or like property. What's up with that? So we have so little love for this Philemon guy. Like, sure, he has a church in his house, but he's never going to be able to work off this being a slave owner guy. Except we sing a wonderful hymn by a guy named John Newton, who used to be a uh, slave trade ship captain. And we sing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a useless person like me, a wretch like me. And so there is redemption for useless slave owners. But then let's think about Onesimus for a minute. And this is the greatest irony of all. You know what Onesimus means? Useful. His name means useful. But think about a useful slave. What does a slave do? He keeps the household running. He keeps things, you know, keeps the lawnmowers running and he keeps the leaf blowers going and he keeps the cappuccinos coming. And, and so really useful, but as, as a person, you don't just want to hang with him, right? He's not like a friend that you want a friend on Facebook. You don't want to arrange, you know, some uh, sushi with him and, and hang out. <clears throat> and he's really useless now because he's a runaway slave, which legally makes him a thief. He has stolen someone else's property, and in Roman law, he was allowed to be hunted down, receive bounty for, and then sometimes even killed. That that would be perfectly just. So this guy who was useful in an economic sense and is now totally useless because he has run away and broken the law, we just want to be done with him. We want him to go away. He's a problem never to be seen again. Except, who's writing this story? Well, we begin to see that God is writing this story and that somehow in God's universe, all of these paths cross. How do these paths cross? Well, Paul is a church planter. And so he planted a church. Uh, there was a church in Ephesus, and about 15 miles up uh, the road is a town called Colossae. And that's where Philemon lives. And so in uh, preaching the gospel and in sharing uh, in the synagogues, explaining to Jewish people how Jesus fulfills all the promises and all the pictures of the Old Testament, this guy Philemon becomes a Christian. And he isn't just a token Christian. He has the whole church in his house. They meet every uh, Lord's Day in his house. And yes, Onesimus is a slave in his house. But as he runs away, guess where Onesimus runs to? Paul just happens to be in prison in Rome. And of course, because God is who he is and, and he does things well. And so as Paul is interacting with his old friend Philemon... We want to see a few things. If you're taking notes, 
we got about four points, and then come to the table. First, we see that the gospel brings strange partnerships. Like people say, you couldn't have made this one up if you wanted to. And that's the beauty of God's wisdom. That's the beauty of God's quirkiness, how he does things kind of backwards, upside down, but that fits the situation just so perfectly, is that God redeems this. Because there's this interesting word. Uh, the important word, because of God's grace, is, not, is no longer useless. There's this really beautiful word that's used throughout the concept is this idea of partner. It's used in verse 1. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. This is a form of the word koinonia, or fellowship. Philemon, I have sweet fellowship with you in this gospel thing, this church planting thing, this God's kingdom thing, this Jesus Christ thing. We have fellowship. We're tight. We have unity, and we belong together. This is awesome. I love you, brother. I love what God's doing together. He actually uses this uh, word when he talks about um, Onesimus. Look at verse 13. I would have been glad to keep him with me, talking about Onesimus, in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. He's basically saying, hey, hey, partner, because I can't have you. You know what? I've got the next best thing. I've got Onesimus. Is that together we can partner. You can't be with me right now physically, but... But your brother, Onesimus, is with me. And so our partnership is tight as we're partnering together with my buddy, Onesimus. And then down in verse 16, look at what he says. He's no longer as a slave. I'm sending him back to you. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. So I'm not just sending your property back to you. I'm sending a partner in in this thing of, of the gospel together. Basically saying, I'm sending you God's instrument to build up your faith and to build up your joy. A partner in our common joy. This useless dude named Useful. He's going to be useful not just in what can get done at your house, but what God is doing in our relationship and in our hearts. But next I want to look at, uh, we're going to pick up some of that partner language in a minute too, but look at Paul's motivation Michael and Eric and I meet as we're talking about church ministry and about how do we motivate people? And it's like, well, we can't use guilt. <clears throat> like our arms are so tired from you know doing all this work. Like, don't make us do it alone. You know, it's like, how do we spur people without using all the lame tools? Like, you go to hell if you don't. You know, you, you, it's like there's certain things we can't say, and there's certain things we can't use. And Paul is very sensitive to this. He's like, I'm an apostle, but I don't bring out my big apostle stick to get you to do the right thing. Because he says, what would be the... Sure, you're going to do it, but it's because my apostle stick was, you know, you hear it like a lightsaber. It's like, you know, you'll do it, but he's like, I want you to do it out of a heart that's just excited to be partnering with God in this relational ministry thing that God has going on uh, with us. But he says, basically, what's the motivation for taking useless people and hanging with them and working with them and treasuring them. What, what is the thing that's going to drive us to do that? More than willpower, more than guilt, more than because somebody in authority told us? It has to be love. And how does love happen? I'm going to love you. 
Well, if you're like gritting your teeth and squinting your eyes when you're going to love somebody, are they feeling the love? No, they're not, right? So we're like, God, I'm supposed to love them. Yes, that's your command, but I want it to come out of me as something that's my new second nature. I want to be transformed in a loving way. I want to act in a loving way, and I want to view them in a loving way. And that's what Paul is doing, is he's addressing Philemon's heart. And think about the temptation of Philemon's heart. Yeah, I want that guy back. Because he's mine. He's my property. He's rightfully, he should be back here. But Paul addresses his heart and he addresses it through the gospel and says, you need that guy back because he is so precious and he's a brother to me. And he's a brother to our Lord Jesus Christ. So take him back. Not because it's quote unquote right and it's your right but because it's right, because it's what God's up to. So what God calls us to as a command isn't always just, here's the bar, reach it, okay? Jump higher, jump higher, jump higher. But what the gospel says is about something new that's already true. By God's grace, we're adopted by the same Father. We have all of our backgrounds that are different versions of this theme, useless, and God brings us home and he says, we're not going to talk about your past. We're going to talk about who you are. And what that means now. Because we belong to him, everything has changed. It's turned the world upside down. One of the beautiful things that is turned upside down is this next uh, point, which is a new interpretation. I have to be real honest. I'm a guy, and I'm the worst kind of guy. My wife used to say, why don't you have any friends? And then I would be super spiritual and say, I don't need friends. I have you, my wife, and I've got Jesus, and I've got a lot of books. And so uh, I'm good. My heart has room for one, and it's you, you know. Um, but actually, there's something really wrong with me. She was like, there's something wrong with you. She was almost crying like, oh, there's something wrong with you. I want you to be better. I want you to be a real human being. And... Uh, she wanted the best for me, but I didn't want it because I was just looking at myself in a very narrow sense about, I got my theology, I got my books, I got my wife, check, 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 check. <clears throat> well, God wants to blow kind of our checkbox way of relating to people. And it would be very easy for Paul to be Mr. Type A, church planter, scholar, dude, to be just like that. I'm here for Jesus. Jesus matters. I'm old. I'm about to die. Life kind of stinks right now. So to get very narrow and like, I'm going to write a lot of books before I die. You know, that's my mission. But this Paul obviously has a lot of time on his hands. But you notice in all of his letters, at the end of almost all of Paul's letters in the New Testament, it's almost like reading his contacts in his smartphone. He just lists all these people. Oh, yeah, and say hi to them and say hi to them. Yeah, we met at their house and, you know, we had dinner with them. Say hi to them. Oh, I love him. He, he's awesome in my ministry. You know, thank, thank him especially. What does Paul do? He's now interpreting his life not in terms of projects or problem people or potential, you know, donors to his church planting mission. He just, like, loves all these people that God's, like, throwing into his world and he embraces them. And he calls Timothy, who's kind of a weak, meek, kind of shy guy. He's like, he's my son. I love you, Timothy. Go be a pastor. God loves you. He's giving you gifts. Go be bold and love people well. So what's this new interpretation? We don't look at people for their 
tactical usefulness. We look at them as precious to God and precious to Christ. That we have this new relational way to think about things and to think about opportunities and to think about God's kingdom. Because God's kingdom is really new relationships for a new purpose. We're not hanging out because we all like the same stuff. We hang out because we have the same dad. And we didn't pick him. He picked us. Because we were useless and we were haters. And he forgave us and he brought us home. And that's the heart that Paul is demonstrating and then is welcoming us all into. A heart that is able to have a new interpretation of the people in our world and the stuff that's going on, even that's painful and even that's stressing us out. So Paul, like we're talking about in Peacemaker, he's doing this kind of dance, like trying to get these guys together, and there's so much awkwardness. There's societal awkwardness, and there's economic awkwardness. There's just all kinds of stuff, you know. And us guys, we're like, I don't need all that stress. Come on. Relationships, that's why I only have one friend. I don't need that stress, you know. And many of us, and I'm really fighting this in my own life because I work three jobs, and I'm like, this is my blue-collar job, this is my white-collar job, this is my church job, so which, which hat am I wearing? I really want to have my life be like a bento box. Everything kind of arranged, everything tightly rolled, really like nice presentation, things not spilling over, just the right amount of you know, ginger, right amount of wasabi. But you know what God does? He's making a casserole. He's like, you know, just stirring it up. And you're like, what's that in there? It's like, but it's all good, but I don't know what's in it. Can you tell me what the recipe is? And this lovely mess that God is doing in our relationships and our world is just his genius. And that leads us to this last thing that really brings us to the table, which is the cost. There's this wonderful theme that's running throughout uh, this uh, passage is cost. What's it going to cost Philemon to take Onesimus back? It seems like he's going to take a financial hit, kind of like, especially if he does what Paul says. Take him back not as a slave, but as a brother. He's like, well, I'm going to have this guy that eats and doesn't work. What's up with that? <laughs> He used to do all kinds of stuff. I got to get another guy to do Onesimus work, and then I got to like have Onesimus at my table, doing nothing, just hanging. And us saying, "I love you, bro," all the time. It's like, what's up with that? And Paul's on to him, and Paul trumps him by saying something really crazy. He says, "Whatever he stole from you, because obviously, if you're going to be a runaway slave, you better have some pocket money to like eat between Colossae and Rome." Um, there's no charities, there's a lot of robbers, there's not a lot of Motel 6, he didn't have tents. So he had to have some resources, and obviously he didn't have a lot of his own, so he's going to have to take some of Philemon's resources to make his escape. And so Paul literally says, just like the Good Samaritan, charge it to my account. Whatever it costs to make this right, charge it to my account. And maybe you're hearing that and you're going, Oh, shoot, God's saying, make up with people and say, whatever junk you did to me, that's okay, like, put it on my tab. There's some very abusive people, and good people usually get really burned by those kind of people. You say, is this a blanket invitation for lame people to just run all over us? Not really, but that's a different sermon. 
but this table says something about that. We were the runaways who stole God's glory, who broke God's ways, killed God's son, sinned against him, hated him, didn't praise him, didn't thank him, didn't think about him. And what does God say? Put it on my account. So what does that do to us? It sort of steals like one of our primary tools that we use with people is tit for tat, quid pro quo. God ruins it by being so extravagantly gracious. Paul demonstrates it and invites his friend Philemon into it. And we, like Onesimus, need to just be blown away. But think about Onesimus, and maybe it'll help you think about yourself. When you come back home, what are you expecting to hear from God? You expect him to make you pay, do some chores, sleep in the garage for a while, and then when you've kind of paid off your time, you get to move into the big house with the big boys and, and eat at the table. That after you've done your time and been sorry enough and sad enough because of what you did, then you can come hang with him. You know what the message of the gospel says? Somebody already did that for you. Somebody already suffered for your sins. So all that you need to do is come home. Sure, it's shameful because you ran away and you're going to have to talk about that with God. God, I ran away. You're going to have to deal with your stuff. But guess what? God's dealt with it already. He says, I know you're a runaway. You're not telling me anything I don't already know. And what it's going to cost to bring you home. I'm not going to punish you for you being away. I'm going to make you hate being gone. You know how I'm going to do that? By loving you so well. By loving you in such a costly way. Loving you every day and reminding you that I want you home more than you want to be home. So that brings us to this table. Who is this table for? It's for sinners. It's for runaways. It's for people who have been called back home by Jesus and and whose sins have been covered with his blood. And so this is for baptized Christians who have been gathered into the runaway, the home for runaways, which is the church. People that have been gathered back to Jesus and have been marked out that your old life has passed and your new life has come. God wants to wash you, bring you home, put new clothes on you, and sit you at the family table. So in one sense, this is the table for family. Not the IGC family, not just, you know, certain kind of people or a certain color of people. This is for sinners who believe in our Lord Jesus Christ and who are part of a church who celebrates and rejoices in the gospel and teaches his word. So this morning, if that's you, a runaway who's been brought home, don't expect to be sad when you're at this meal. Remember who brought you here and remember who has paid the cost. But this morning, if you are not a Christian, you haven't been forgiven by Jesus, think about who you are. No, you're not useless. You're just a runaway that God wants to bring home. So this morning, there is hope for you. 
please don't take uh, the bread or the cup when it comes by you because this is for family. But guess what? You can be included in God's family because who does God love? Who does God forgive? Who does God bring to his table? Sinners, there's hope for you. And so you can talk to me or Michael or Eric or or really anybody that, that really understands God's grace and forgiveness. And this... You can be part of this as you believe God and receive his forgiveness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we used to say that Jesus was useless, that he was embarrassing and shameful being on a cross, but now we see the beauty of it, that the cost of our being brought home, the cost of our being a runaway has been paid with his blood. And that now we are welcomed, that we aren't just useful in doing work for you, but that Paul says, we're your very heart. And in fact, scripture talks about us being the very body of Christ, is that we're one with him. So we thank you for this uh, table that shows us our union with Jesus, that we are now one flesh with him, that we are home, that we share his name, we share his his character, we share his future, we share his home. And that now we have brothers, fellow runaways who've been brought home. And help us to love them, not just for their usefulness, but because of who they are. They belong to our Father in heaven. Thanks for these common things of bread and juice. Thank you that Jesus has poured out his blood for us so we could be forgiven and we could be home. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.